The day we were recording this episode, the Wall Street Journal posted articles with the following headlines. Pace of layoffs picks up speed in the tech sector. Global Tech Expo finds startups in a crunch. Stocks retreat to start a new year. As a tech professional, if you were hoping the new year was going to be different, uh, you may be sadly disappointed. But there is this old saying, when the going gets tough, the tough get going. And I feel the listeners of this podcast are professionals that are anxious to get going. I am Thomas Law, the Executive Director of the Technology and Services Industry Association, and welcome to Tectonic, the podcast where we explore what makes technology business models successful in today's world. And today, we are privileged to have Wendy Sturgis, a seasoned tech executive and current CEO of a SaaS company named Clever Bridge. And let's get right into it. Wendy, welcome to Tectonic. At the end of last year, you and I had this great conversation about the state of SaaS business models, and we're going to click into that topic a big time, uh, and it's going to be fun. But before we do, I do want to explore your career trajectory that led you to becoming a CEO in tech, because I think it's a great story. And I know that a lot of our listeners are always very curious what paths people travel right in their careers. And you graduated from Georgia Tech with a degree in industrial management. Do I have that right? Mm -hmm. And, And then you started in consulting. So let's start there. What attracted you to start your career there? Yeah, well, we have to go back a little a little before that. I was 18 years old. It's such a great story. I called my father. I'm going to date myself. It's the 80s. And I say, Daddy, I have two job offers to be a co-op, which is a big part of a lot of big engineering schools. Coca-Cola and a software company. Think about this in the 80s. This is like mainframe, green screen. Yep. Tech was not cool. And I give my dad so much credit. He said, you're taking a software company job. And the rest really is history, Thomas. I why It's called American Software. It was a real software company in Atlanta in the 80s. And so you know, you're going to see a little bit of a theme about mentorship. I had worked there for five years. I did special projects for the CEO this real, like with thousands of employees and hundreds of million in revenue it was a big supply chain. We didn't call it that back then. And I had a mentor there said, you can always come back here, but you've been working here since you were 18. And I want you to get some more professional seasoning. Yep. And so he said, I think the big five, the big four is an incredible. And then the other thing, and I think this is interesting, and I mentor so many people as well. I ended up doing client facing activities. Thomas, the taxis come and pick me up at my sorority house to take me on business trips. When I was 21 years old, it was the most incredible experience, but I wasn't technical. I didn't take a lot of computer science. I would have flunked out at Georgia Tech, such a hard um, school for that back then. And so I really wanted to get technical. And back then, all of the big consulting firms were doing very intensive technical training programs. Oh, nice. So it was really the two. And I ended up loving it. I was there for eight years. I thought I was going to be a partner. And then this internet thing came along, which we can talk about more later. But I think it's mentorship. What are building your building blocks of your foundation? And for me, it was that professional technology background and then getting more technical, which I loved. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because my uh, cousin came out of school, I think maybe with an accounting degree and ended up at EDS where they also did really intense technical training. And so so you're right, and you and I are about the same age. I remember that era. There, there was a point in time where a lot of firms, uh, you know, IBM, EDS, the big five, could take people who were non-technical and really invest in them and help them become more technical. And I wonder in today's world if we're not going to have to see 
more of that because we continue to have this tight labor market, you know, where there's just not exactly. enough tech talent and, and people aren't, aren't getting enough of those people coming out of school with those degrees that, you know, we need to see. Totally. That. I mean, you know, Accenture, they bragged about taking religion majors and art history, you know, that was like their kind of their calling card. Well, it's interesting because we've been talking about skill development for um, my team and there's some incredible like Code Academy, a friend of mine's the CMO, Skill Crush. I mean, these programs are free. And I said, why are we not putting together more access with these are the types of skills we think you should have. You get to choose because I think everyone should choose their own journey. And I'm actually really excited. My team doesn't even know this, but I'll give a little preview. We're going to do something called development week in June, where we're going to give our employees most of the week off. And we're going to have a compendium of internal training, product trainings internally and external and really show our people, you know, you got to get serious about your career. Your employer can help you. But you also need to think about your skills and just kind of teaching that intentionality about how you think about growing your skills. So development week, that's what we're calling it. We're going to do it in June. We're very excited. Yeah, no, I, I, think, <laughs> I think it's cool. And there's a general theme we've had in this podcast over several episodes for tech again in general. You know, our ability to drive better diversity, to have basically a bigger pipeline of talent means we've got to reach beyond technical degrees. <laughs> we really have to be, you know, much more inclusive here that the people who are, like you said, a religion major, a philosophy major, a whatever major. Yeah. And they say, well, tech's not for me, right? Tech's computer science, electrical engineering. No, it's mm-hmm. not. I mean, there's a lot of opportunities here. So, so we digress, but that was, a, that was a good, that was a good tangent, but you know, back to your career. So, so you have this really, I, I think, impressive run in consulting roles, right? Regional vice president at Oracle Consulting. You were COO for Gardner's Consulting. Um, and then you, you go to partner management at Yahoo. Yep. So what was the catalyst there? How'd you make that jump? Well, again, the intentionality, I think, of what you want in your career. Um, so there was a little, there was a little kind of pre-step to that, which was I was like, I want to do more services at a technology company. I'm tired of doing it for other people's technology. And and that's why I went to Oracle. I thought I would like it. Mm -hmm. But it was still, we were competing with all the external firms. I almost felt like we really weren't a part of Oracle. And so I also took a step back. And this is, I think, a really important lesson for younger people. What technology excites you? What do you see yourself wanting to do? And so I, this was probably, oh, five, six, I said, gosh, I think there's something to this online advertising. And what's crazy, Thomas, is when I got into online advertising technology, ad tech, martech, there was SaaS, there was, it was only an $8 billion industry. Mm-hmm. It's now $225 billion. Yeah. And I was just reading an article today with streaming, with Netflix and Disney and everything they're doing, it's all going to become more digital. Mm-hmm. And I thought, self, I think, and this is what I said to myself, it's going to become softwareized. And so I went to work for a little company called Right Media, which was a really innovative company, and we immediately got bought by Yahoo. Oh, okay, that's how you get it there. Yeah. Okay, what? Yeah. Like how did I end up here at Yahoo and now I'm at this media company, Thomas, mm-hmm. which I didn't sign up to do. I thought I was going to work for a technology company, and I have to say it was one of the coolest experiences of my life because I did bring a different skill set. Yeah. You know, ad sales and I was always on the technology platform side. So I wasn't out going doing going to Detroit to do the upfronts mm-hmm. for the, you know, Ford and everybody. Um, and I ended up staying for four years. And the thing again, you have to think about the intentionality, like that corp dev partnership experience, again, something I hadn't had. I thought, well, what a cool, um, I ran the revenue that flowed through the partner network that I ran was about half of Yahoo's revenue. 
It was billions and billions of dollars. And so I had a huge team. I restructured the team. I got them on incentive comps. And so I think people get put stuck in ruts and don't understand that you can actually bring these skills from other parts of tech and really have an impact. I mean, Thomas, the last role I had there, I ran the paid search business in the US, was, which was a $1.8 billion business. And I had technically never run sales. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about that. And this is another thing we've talked about in this podcast and previous episodes are these spiral career paths where people make these, these moves, you know, becoming expert in one area, and then they jump over you know, it's in often it's a very lateral can be a lateral move, right? But but it's into a completely different mm-hmm. world. And so, what gave you the confidence to go from like you said, you're on the technical side, you know, the, the, the integration platform side, and now you're partner world, right? So what? How would you coach somebody if they had that, that same type of opportunity? What would you tell them? You know, to kind of get them through that knothole that this is going to be okay. Yeah, I mean, again, I think well, part of it, and I'd say this, you know. We all know that some women, it's like, well, if I haven't done it at least twice, then I don't think I'm ready. Mm-hmm. I don't know why, Thomas, but I never had that problem. <laughs> I've no. fountains of confidence that are probably somewhat unfounded. But I think you have to remember that Price Waterhouse, this level of professionalism and relationship building, which we were so much training, not just the technical training. That's that professional I talk about. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I got to be honest with you, Thomas. And I loved my peers. Like one of my peers there is the CEO of ESPN. I mean, I had an incredible set of peers. But in true business, Mm -hmm. I knew more than them. I just had come from that different background. So what I would say is... There, you, you will learn. And I learned from all of them. And I work for incredible this guy, Ross Levinson, who's my husband's boss now. I mean, he's an amazing mentor of mine. I learned from them, but I had a fundamental set of skills that really helped me to be successful. I got onto Carol Bart's and the board's see, um, kind of radar. Mm-hmm. I was just doing some pretty radically different things that people didn't do in the industry. And we started to see real business results as a result of those. They had never done a partner day, Thomas. They had never brought all of their partners together. And they've been in business for like 18 years. It's now thousands of people attend. I started that. And I had Carol. So I think you have to, to understand, and I think relationship management, understanding executives, business prioritization, alignment of what your company can do for your partner or your client. These are fundamental things that transcend every nuance of tech or whatever. You You know, I think what you're putting on the table here is the fact that foundational business acumen is a critical skill. And if you have good, solid business acumen, which is a lot of the things you're articulating, right, then that skill set can give you confidence and help carry you through some of these, you know, again, these very sometimes lateral moves into very different areas. And you can have the confidence to say, look, you know, I may not know, I may not be an expert yet in, in, the, in the world of partner management for, for Yahoo, right. but, but I have, uh, you know, a really good foundational understanding, you know, in business acumen. I can bring those skills to the table here and, and use that, mm-hmm. you know, to navigate the waters, and and I think that's a that's a good lesson to folks. I mean, I think you know, it's amazing to me. I've taught an MBA class for ten years at Ohio State, and when I was in in the MBA program, I read like crazy. I read the Wall Street Journal, I read Fortune, I read business books. You know, I read Drucker. I because that's how I felt. I I learned foundational business skills. I get concerned because a lot of these students nowadays don't freaking read the the foundational stuff. Right? They, they may be reading. 
you know, the headlines of stuff, right? No, or, no, I'm on my journal. I was yeah. reading it earlier this there, morning. Yeah. So you read the same articles <laughs> that, I, that I mentioned this morning. So, I, exactly. so there's a good lesson there to say, look, invest in your foundational business acumen. Take time to keep that current. Take time, and, and that will serve you, you really well. And, and in your case, I mean, you actually bridge the gap to the you know CR, CRO and then CEO. And I think I think this is yaks, right? So, so how did you you make you know cross that final bridge, right? Intact mm-hmm. to get to that to you know to that level of the executive suite. What helped you get there? Well, and I think in a couple of other things, I mean, you do, you, you need to have a lot of that foundational business. I don't have an MBA, Thomas, you know, and we'll talk later about teaching at an elite business school when I'm like, wow, these, these, these students are incredibly impressive. But one of the things that's not really apparently obvious is that I worked for the CFO of Gartner mm-hmm. when I was a COO of Gartner for a period of time. He's still an important mentor friend. Mm-hmm. And I got so many of the foundations. So I'd done part of kind of partner management. Also had a corp dev component. I'd worked for a CFO. I had to prepare report. I had to prepare the commentary for the analyst reports, Thomas. Yeah. Yeah. For my business unit, which was a $500 million business unit. And I had to, to learn how to do budgeting, planning, forecasting, do all my financial reporting. That isn't obvious there. Mm-hmm. And so I think, you know, CRO to CEO without a little bit broader experience, I think could be hard, right? And I'm also technical. I coded, I ran projects. So I have a gravitation towards always being very attached from a revenue to the product and engineering side. So I think if you're very narrow, and it's interesting, I'm very humble about this. You know, I interviewed for some CRO big jobs. I never got them Mm -hmm. because they didn't totally get my background because they wanted somebody who started out as a BDR and became a mid-market sales rep. And then, you know, the whole thing. I hadn't done that. And so I think you have to, if you have the broader, what was really interesting for me, and I ran that huge sales organization at Yahoo as well, I had never been a CRO, Thomas. Again, you've got all the foundational skills. Do you want to push yourself? I always wanted to push myself. I always wanted to do things that I hadn't done. And then the CEO was not that hard because along the way, I had captured all of these other things, Mm -hmm. some financial capabilities, being aligned and knowing how to work with product and engineering, being really passionate about that. The first thing I, when I got to this job, I said, well, I want to I mean, we had a product head of engineering and I are going to, you know, ultimately it's their call, but I'm going to have a very strong voice in the roadmap for every quarter. And they were like, really? I was like, oh yeah, Mm -hmm. (laughs) I'm a client facing executive and I have very strong opinions. And I also want to balance that. And it's a wonderful partnership between the three of us and we give and take, and it's really, 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 really good. So, and here's what's interesting. The last thing I'll say about the CEO job is, you know, I'd been getting phone calls for a period of time. I think if you're going to make that leap, whatever all these career leaps we talked about, you better be excited about what the company does Mm -hmm. and the technology because you got to run hard at it. And if you're like, I don't really know if I believe in this and we'll talk more about what we do, but I very much believe that we have a real business problem and all the headlines you just said, we have a moment in time and it really resonated with me. So I think that comes through when you're interviewing. I, I really believe in what this company's doing. And when other companies called me, I was like, no, I don't, I don't really think that um, it's a neat company. Congratulations. Good for you guys, but not something that I can put my heart and soul into. So when I think you're making those leaps, 
and you can make those leaps and everybody can one course that you really are excited about it. Cause you're going to have to go above and beyond. I mean, Thomas, when I, when I got into online advertising, I kept a notebook with everything that someone said that I didn't understand. I filled an entire notebook mm-hmm. with yeah. things that I didn't understand. And then I would go in on the weekends or I would ask people and say, Hey, can you sit down? These are the things I didn't understand in that meeting. You have to really want it. Yeah. Yeah. to make that leap, right? You got you to really want it in your heart. And so I think you have to feel passionate about what it is you're going to do. Well, I'll, I'll make two observations on everything that you, you just put on the table there. So the first one around that CEO role, I, I, in my time and what I do for a living and getting to interact with CEOs, I mean, I, I really do see two distinct profiles. And there are CEOs that I will call the mercenary CEOs, that they are there because mm-hmm. they, they want that title, they want that compensation, and it's very clear. And then there are the mission-oriented CEOs. And, and I don't think there is any doubt in my mind that the better CEOs for, for the company, for the employee, for the customers are the ones that are more mission-oriented. There's just no doubt about it. Now, it yep. doesn't mean that that's not always what gets rewarded the most, but I think, you know, and, and so if you, for anybody listening who thinks that's the bridge I want to cross, I really want to go to that level, you have this fork in the road where you, you either are going to be a mercenary CEO and you're just going to take the mm-hmm. role because someone offered it to you, or you're going to be mission oriented. And I think, you know, my observation is the ones that are mission oriented are having a better time <laughs> and they're better liked. Not that the job of the CEO is about being liked, but they're, they're I say they're better respected, you know, from their, their mm-hmm. employees and their, and their customers because people get it. You can't fake that. You're either one or, you know, you're one yeah. or the other. So the other thing I want to comment on though is your CR role. And you said that, you know, a lot of times people were looking for somebody who really had a sales pedigree before they'd make them a CRO. And we've got a body of research here and, and you know, we really, we've examined this role over the past um, two years. We have a CRO council now. And as we aggregate these folks, there's two types of CROs. There are CROs that are really sales executives with a new fancy title. <laughs> and there are CROs that are much more the pedigree you were describing where they have, you know, more rounded business acumen. You know, they're more analytical, they're more process driven, and they're thinking in much broader ways than a typical sales executive. And I think that is the future profile for CROs. They are not going to be somebody who's basically like, I carried a quota and now I just have, you know, I have a different kind of title. You've got to be analytics driven, data driven, process driven. And it's going to be, I think, you know, more and more companies, that role has got to be in play because you need somebody like that focused on how we cost effectively drive revenue. Yeah. Well, and then the intersection with your client base, right. and we'll talk more about that. And how do you think about in scarce resources yeah. or now with these cuts? How, how is it? You, I mean, we, this is where you and I totally riffed out. Um, and I think one of the greatest accomplishments that, and I got this from Yahoo, actually, that I did at Yext as a CRO. And I had to, for whatever reason, and my, my, my head of engineering there is the greatest engineering leader I will ever work with extraordinary, but he wasn't really into data science. So imagine as a CRO, I said, I'm going to build a small data science yeah, team. Like if you've only grown up in sales and I learned about data science from these incredible data scientists at Yahoo, mm-hmm. yeah. unbelievable with all those mountains of billions, billions of impressions. And it helped us to actually make decisions on how we ran the business. Cause it was a marketplace, right? These search auctions and they're, they're marketplaces and there's so much dynamics going on. So again, I think you pick up these things along the way and there's a young man named Zahid. I'll do a shout out. One of the greatest hires I've ever made in my career was hiring him. And we built this 
unbelievable customer insights mm-hmm. team and what they could help us do on this pre-sales with the ROI stories, but also proving the value and the upselling of all the products. But what was also cool, Thomas, was we ended up, because we did have a unique data set that we got across this entire page, we started doing um, you know reports that got us millions of unearned, you know, earned Mm -hmm. impressions. So we didn't have to pay for. So there's so much. And to your point, I just don't know that somebody you didn't have that and you hadn't seen that would know how to do it. And if, if, if anyone who's listening doesn't have the customer insights in some way and isn't looking at analytics and understanding it, you need to go start working on that right away. Yeah. Yeah, my, my, my assertion on this would be if you have the title CRO and you're saying, look, I, I don't really look at analytics, I don't leverage analytics, th- then I question if you really are the CRO. <laughs> I mean, that is really yeah. table stakes, becoming table stakes, I think, for that for that function. So I have w- one more thing I want to comment on your career because I, I saw it in your background here in, in this fact that you taught this MBA class at Columbia and it was titled Building the Sales Machine. And as we've talked about, again, that wasn't really your pedigree. So how, how did you get that gig? How did you get that? Well, and again, I think this is where, you know, relationship building and I'd encourage people and people ask you, there's an amazing venture capitalist named Mike Brown in New York City. He runs an early stage. They do seed and series A, SaaS only. Mm-hmm venture capital. It's called Bowery Capital. And um, he asked me to speak at a couple of his conferences. And I say, yes, great opportunity. They weren't huge, but they were really impressive people. And he and I didn't know each other that well. And um, it's an interesting thing, Thomas, and I don't know if your business school had it. Sales, it is the number one profession in America. Mm -hmm. Okay. The most people of professional jobs are in sales. And until about five to seven years ago, most business schools weren't teaching right, anything correct. about it. Right. And it was so interesting. We asked the students at the beginning of each semester, how many of you actually are taking this class because you think you want to go into sales? And it was less than probably 10 hands yeah. of a class. Of, and the class got really popular, yeah. all tribute to Mike, by the way. And, they, and we said, why are you taking it? And here's what's interesting. They all said sales will be a part. I will manage someone who's leading sales. Or I'm going back to Paris to run a family business that has a sales. I need to understand it. So I think there's this recognition that it is an equal skill with analytics, right, in some ways. And so Mike asked me to do it. And again, you know, there's a theme here, Thomas. I like to do stuff I haven't done. (laughs) I was like, okay, it was exhausting. Oh, my God, it was so hard. And these students at Columbia, and I'm sure it's this way at all of it, most, they were so impressive. Mm -hmm. They kicked our butts. They asked us very tough questions. They had a really, um, really interesting project they had to do every semester. That was very hard. These were not, this was not an easy project. Mm -hmm. And so what's happened, Thomas, is there's a whole compendium. Um, It's a Virginia Tech I want to say Alabama and Florida State are three of the schools. And so they're all kind of sharing some of their learnings. But it was going through how do you build a pipeline? How do you do outreach? How do you see? We had a whole class on CRM and managing forecasting, which I really had a blast with because I learned a ton at Oracle. How do you, how does marketing fit in? How do BDRs? I mean, it was just, it was a fantastic class. It was great. Yeah. One comment on that. Enrollment for the MBA programs across the country, even the elite programs, has been down. And I, being involved with the program for over a decade, I would submit the, the biggest issue is they are disconnected with the reality of some of the business challenges. And to your point, you know, sales is a great example. You know, companies drive revenues primarily through sales. It's a very popular, and, and how much content, how much scaffolding do they have on that topic? Close to none. 
And that's a disconnect. That's a, if you're a business school and you're trying to prepare people to be effective business executives, right? I, I used to teach a lot of content around as a service. Most of these business schools, you know, as a service business models, you know, subscription, annuities, all, you know, all the nuances of that. Yeah. It's like, well, you know, we're, we're doing logistics. We're doing supply chain management. Not that that's not important, but there's this yeah. massive economy over here called the subscription. So, so I, I diverge, but it, you know, I, I love that class. So that was the precursor. So let's get to the here and now. So you are the CEO of Cleverbridge. So tell us a little bit about the mission of that company. How long has it been around? Yeah, so it's it's a 15-year-old company co-founded between Chicago and Cologne, Germany. So I go to Cologne about every six weeks. So truly international business. And that's also what we do for our clients. So I love that I love that international. I lived in London when when COVID hit. So for me, I also want again this theme, doing different things, pushing yourself, being um, never lived in a foreign country. And again, I have a husband who's very up for whatever, let's go. So um, what the company has always done, and then we'll talk about where we're taking our technology and innovating, is allowed any company in the technology space to be able to sell digitally, like really overnight mm -hmm. without having to have, and in any country. So you may, you know, legal entities to set those up. If your audience doesn't know, it's very expensive. It could cost about $250,000. What if I want to go to Singapore and Taiwan and um, et cetera? Mm -hmm. Very, very difficult, very expensive. Do I want to set up a sales? Um, and so we've always at our core helped people for 15 years in the digital transformation. Now I'll make a comment. I'm still, I got into the internet in 1997. If you had told me 25 years later that we would still be this far behind on digital enablement for companies and especially technology, I would have said that's not possible. Mm -hmm. We're going to be so far ahead, but here we are. So I've always been passionate about being able to buy online. And so we've always focused our bread and butter. We do a ton of work with cybersecurity companies, software development tools. How do you stand up a digital channel? But as we started to this point, our clients moved from perpetual to subscription, we had to build capabilities for subscription management. And we realized that we were building all this incredible expertise. So the company did before I got here in renewal management. Oh, okay. And so the mission of the company going forward is that giving people the freedom to grow mm -hmm. by making it easy for their clients to transact with them. And it, by the way, freedom to grow may mean you have less salespeople. They're focused on a higher level. And I know you have yeah. some of your research backs this up completely. Yeah. Um, let you grow with less headcount. How do you meet your customer? And here's another really interesting data point. Right now, 70% um, of all B2B buyers that are Gen Z and millennials say, I don't want to talk to anybody right. unless I just have to. So why can you not, every company, allow someone to transact if they choose to, maybe of a certain dollar amount or renew? Why do I have to speak to somebody? And that is still the reality. And that is our mission to allow companies to grow without adding headcount and do this in a much more automated way. And so our core technology is e-commerce. We have a marketing capability and fintech because you've got to be able to process the payments and you've got to be able to do that globally. And so it came out of this digital and we still do this. We just signed up an amazing old school company in Chicago, 500 million in the um, microphone space. To right now today, Thomas, and we're excited to share our story. And in the next coming months, they they still were not people were not able to buy their stuff online, and so that and it, it's just something we're su I'm super passionate about because I've been I've been a big believer in digital for a very long time. 
you know, and as I listen to you, you know, I think an important thing here is is there's so many B two B companies, and we we work you know mostly with enterprise you know B two B companies that say, oh yeah, you know, the, the digital stuff for B two C that's one thing, but you know, my offers are so complex, or my customers need you know a throat to choke, or you know, there's all these reasons why they're like that's different in B2C. You know, our assertion for many years is like, look, man, that train is coming to your B2B station. To your point, you've got to oh, make yeah. it super easy for customers. Not every customer, but but a chunk of your customers are going to want to interact this way. And you got to lower that friction down and make it as painless as possible. Otherwise, you know, if your competitor can do that and you can't, that is going to become a problem. Thomas, it's huge. And by the way, 40% of our transactions are B2B now. So we're no longer in the B2C. Like that has just happened organically yeah. through, you know, new opportunities or our clients worked with us on B2C and they said, hey, can we do this? And, and you're right. And, I, and this is where I loved your research and I vibed out on it so much. I mean, look, I worked with all the big Wall Street banks. You, you're probably not going to allow you know, let's just say JP Morgan to buy a $3 million with a ton of custom services right, right. and a statement of work that no, but what about a credit union? Because you know what? I had a ton of credit unions mm -hmm. in America and they were much smaller clients. Yeah. yeah. Just even if you're in financial services, I had, I had very small credit union clients and I had JP Morgan and Morgan Stanley and everybody else. Why couldn't I in that mid market mm -hmm. allow that credit union, which was roughly probably below $25,000 deal. Mm -hmm. Sure. They should be Absolutely. able to transact online if they want to not a JP Morgan or any yeah. of those. And so I think it's looking, and I guess this is back to data, your customer segments, your TAM, how verticals buy, the size of the deal, the complexity is their services. But I would resoundingly say, and here's the other thing, if you're not adding a digital capability, I think you're missing market opportunities. Oh, for sure. There's a lot of SMB mid-market, and especially, and this is one of the things that I learned going to Europe. I mean, Thomas, a lot of the European markets really are mid-market. Like if you go to Spain, I mean, you've got Santander and a handful, but the rest of, and there's great accounts. I had a fantastic business in Spain, but it looks like mid-market yeah. in the U.S. It really does. So why not? Okay, you don't want to do that in the U.S. Would you like to have all these great accounts in Spain? Maybe you stand up a digital channel in Spain, right? Because it looks more mid-market. So that's where, where everyone's looking for growth. Yeah. Customer acquisition is very expensive right now. People are seeing the deal slow down. How do you think about adding additional capabilities to grow your business and or do do more with less? Yep. And that's what gets me excited, as you can tell. I love and it. And it leads to this theme on this pivot to profitability. So right before the end of last year, you and I had this, this great mm -hmm. conversation on how things are really shifting and that, that you know, all these SaaS companies who before it was growth at all costs, now it's like, oh, wait, wait a minute. You know, we've really got to focus on profitability. So let me start there. How serious do you think this pivot is for the technology for SaaS companies? Is, is it temporary or do you think that this, this focus on all the things you talked about, you know, more profitable, scalable type growth? Yeah. How serious is this? Well, I think it's very serious. And I mean, look, the pendulum swing, we all know that. You and I are old. We've seen it a lot. Will, will it moderate a little? Maybe. But I think we also both know, and it's something I always struggled with, growth at all costs, you know, the, the Salesforce Amazon model. Well, we could get profitable if we want to. And we could just turn the lever at any time and we're going to grow. 
that works for a handful of companies in a handful of markets mm-hmm. where you've built like the marketplace concept. I think the the average in my old company, Yex, that I'm so proud to have helped build and to run, and it's an amazing company. But, you know, I think we did get a little bit distracted with some of the growth and didn't think about the right, because we didn't have the TAM that a Salesforce had. Like, so why are we trying to follow their playbook? Like they have a very different market opportunity than we had. And I think that people lost the fundamentals. And so I think it's very serious. And I will tell you, and I say this to your readers, the conversation that you and I had, I had a management offsite in Chicago and I spent an hour walking my team through a lot of the findings in the report. And it was a breakthrough for my management team. Yeah. My and, and my CTO, and he had seen it before, so he had already been thinking about it. You know, he was thinking about products not only to grow revenue, but also how we could improve our productivity. Yeah. And I could see that mindset shift a little bit with him. And he's brilliant too another incredible leader. And so I would say it's healthy. It's a good thing. And I don't know where the pendulum will land, but I think we were way too far over on growth at all cost and not understanding. And not everyone can be a Salesforce or an Amazon and a lot of great mid-size, you know, 200 million to 500 million businesses got very, very fat. It's stunning because the pen, we talk about this pendulum. You know, it has been on the one end for almost twenty years now. This mantra yeah. of it's okay to not worry about profitability, and you know, I cannot tell you how many privately held SaaS companies that you know I, I'm, I'm seeing their financials, I'm seeing their economic engine, just absolutely set up to be unprofitable. Just absolutely set up to be unprofitable, right? We give our services away for free. We've got you know tons of money on sales and marketing. And completely have been fine with that for years and years and, and years. And, and so I think that the pendulum is coming back and it's going to stick here for a while. I mean, I think that's the sobering so thing. It's going to stick here for a while. Mm-hmm. And so I'm curious, you know, you're the CEO of a SaaS company, right? So how has this current environment altered your priorities? You talked a little bit about the offsite and getting people together and thinking differently. So what has that changed in, in your thinking as CEO of, okay, if this is the new environment. How do I operate? I think it, and, and, and by the way, Yex, we were pretty, we were pretty cheap in the beginning. Mm-hmm. Like I joke around with my two co-founders, Howard and Brian, we, we didn't, we didn't spend a lot of money. We were, we were really, really frugal. And then as we raised a ton of money in a series D, it's 50 million. And then we went public and no offense to the, I worked with some incredible Salesforce people, but we, we got a little bit away from mm-hmm. it. So I think every listener and everyone is spending the money like it's your own. Yeah. And really making decisions. And so what we did, we had every, we wanted to do a bottoms up budget because I want my executives and and their executives, their directs, which are all VPs to feel a sense of ownership. And what we said is, you know, there's going to be a set of investment cases and don't put those into your budget. Mm -hmm. And we had to kind of coach people. We'll get really good at it next year. Some people put their investment cases in and those are truly investment cases that you have to look at. And you really need to look across the whole business because I think too many businesses say, oh, well, I'll, I'll, I'll do what I want to do and I'll do it over here. And no one in my executive team, not Wendy, we looked at them together and we said for the first half of the year, and I'm a big believer in only setting goals for the first mm-hmm. half of the year in this tech environment, we got to move quickly. Yeah. We got to be responsive. And we've, we, we prioritized a handful. 
we've got a huge swing deal that we'll see what happens in Q1. We said, let's see what happens. And we've got a whole set of those investment cases lined up, but we didn't green light them. That's a discipline that I think is very healthy to really ask yourself, what's the ROI? Do we have to do this? Do we have to do it now? Could we wait six months? And I think companies have lost track of this. I just think they didn't think about it. And by the way, because we did it as a team, I don't think anyone, I mean, some people that their cases got pushed down, probably don't love it, but I think they see that we have a clear vision and a plan and we're focused and we presented that to our board um, after my offsite. So I think, I think this is a good discipline. And I think a ton of leaders and executives are going to have to build some other muscle skills that they haven't had to flex. And I think it's a good thing for them as and their companies that they work for. So a really important thing you said there is that you looked at the investment opportunities really cross-organizationally at the company level. And I think that one of the, the ruts that people fall into, especially if things get tight, right? So you get this classic, hey, where we got to mm-hmm. tighten our belts. I want every department to go take out 5%, 10%, you know, 15, everybody go to your corners and go try to optimize your budgets and come back with, you know, what you're going to trim here and there. And I think that that is a suboptimal exercise because you, what you really want to be looking at is the pot of, of investment you can't afford to make as a company. And where do you want to put that first? Right. And so that's the exercise you went through. It was like, everybody put your good ideas on the table and let's really, as a company, determine what are the top ones that are to make the queue. And then let's be smart about when we actually pull the trigger. That's right. And we put more into engineering and, and by the way, data intelligence. And you know some of the things that we're working on. We've shared those with John and other members of your team. And we didn't we didn't back away from that. And I'm not going to have them cut by whatever or not do it because we see that as a huge opportunity. And then to your point with marketing, we sat down and here's where it gets super interesting. You know, I, I am shocked when I talk to, because um, again, we didn't do zero budgeting yeah. where you start right. over because that's very painful. But we took a little bit of that mentality, and I'll give a great example in marketing. So much, you know, the average software company spends 50 to 75 million on customer acquisition and marketing. Mm-hmm. Do you know what we're asking people how much they spend on retention and uplift marketing? Most people say nothing. They will say, I have, you know, it's like a rounding error. Yeah, I did, I'm not sure. I'm like, what? In this market and environment, keeping your current clients is the easiest and the most important. And then upselling them, uplifting, upgrading, getting more products, Mm cross-selling. And it's been fascinating. And this is where we're kind of doubling down because that, but again, that fixed budget mindset. Oh, well, I've got 75 over here in customer acquisition, so I'm not touching it. Because that's what I've always had. Well, wait, the the world has changed. Deals aren't closing as quickly. They're taking longer. They're smaller, yada, yada, yada. Do you want to think? And that's where I think this is also adjusting to the environment. And it's a great example where I'm flabbergasted that people are like, oh, some people are like, I'm going to go talk to my CMO. I've never even asked the question. Well, so let's build on that because one of the questions I wanted to ask you is you were poaching uh, the CEO of a SaaS company, and, and what do you think are the biggest levers to improve profitability? And so one of them you put on the table here is, hey, you've got to focus on your install base, you know, keeping them, upselling them, cross-selling them, putting more focus and investment there. I agree with you. I mean, I think that that is going to be a, a critical lever instead of this yep. you know, growth, new customer growth, customer acquisition. Any other, other levers that are top of mind, you know, from your perspective, mm-hmm. that a SaaS company should be pulling for profitability? Yeah. Well, you know, I'm super passionate about it. Automation, it doesn't have to be the kind of automation that I have, but you've got to, you've got to rationalize. This is a chance to transform. I mean, we're looking at artificial intelligence to rationalize some things that we're doing internally that will make us more effective. 
I think this is a great opportunity in a time. Yes, it is. It requires investments, but this is the time to, for people to reinvent mm-hmm. themselves, to say, we're going to, we're going to change how we do yep. things. This is the moment, right? Our, our boards are saying we've got to change. Our, our investors are saying we want to see higher profitability. So I think looking at, you know, we talked about renewal automation, one that I just think is such a no brainer for companies yep. to look at some segment, however big or small, but there are many other opportunities. I think the third is, is really prioritization. And I think that's where you're seeing a lot of these companies. You're seeing the alphabets and the metas, you're seeing them chop off Mm -hmm. the experiments. And I think that's healthy. I think tech has always been about testing and trying, throwing against the wall. If it doesn't stick, you got to move on. And so for us, you know, our board, we had a long talk with our board in December and they said, you know, we love the vision of where you're going, but maybe narrow it down a little, be a little more focused this year. Like don't try to do everything. And so I think that you're seeing that in a lot of these layoffs, you're seeing that division. It's hard, but that's tech. It's always been a part of it. We go try it, doesn't work out. So I think that's that that discipline. And we're really, really, really narrowing down. I mean, look, I am a European company and right now I don't have a big go to market in Europe. It just makes more sense for me to be in the U.S. And that's hard because my some of my team is probably like, well, why yeah. don't we have more of a go-to-market team? But the opportunity, I mean, Thomas, I also um, had to make a very difficult decision about some other regional entities and they cost money. The revenue wasn't there. Get back to the basics. Focus on where you know that you're kicking ass and let that go. These are difficult decisions that I think that, that employees respect focus they expect they respect intentionality and not trying to do everything. And some of these, you know, I'd ask people, why did we make this decision to do X or Y? Ah, somebody hired a friend and they wanted to open an office. I'm like, okay, no, not a good go-to-market business decision. And so I think this is another time of reckoning for people to really do that. Yeah, and I want to jump back to this this point that you made about, you know, we've got to think about doing things differently. I think that um, my prediction on this particular downturn is the area where you are going to see the most reinvention, reengineering is going to be on these sales motions. And you mentioned, you know, renewal as an example. Think about how many companies mm-hmm. are adamant that they're saying, hey, look, our, our salesperson has got to be involved in that renewal. It's just it has to be a human activity. Here's all yep. these reasons why. And, you know, OK, well, for some of these renewals, yeah, OK, maybe that's true. But let's start profiling these and analyzing. And maybe for a chunk of these renewals, that doesn't have to be the case. And, and that's just one example, right? But I, I think that the sales motion, everything from renewal, you know, starting with prospecting, qualifying, prioritizing, that has got to become a much more data-driven, process-driven approach, which in tech, as you and I know, historically has not been the case. <laughs> and we've never really pushed on that. Throw bodies, throw, bodies throw body, 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 right. body. Money was just, you know, fat, dumb, and happy. Yeah. And uh, so that's why, again, I think it's healthy. Um, I think I think this pendulum swings are healthy because we've been very spoiled in tech. If you worked in healthcare or fill in the blank insurance or other industries, yeah. they didn't have this yeah. luxury. Yeah, no, I didn't. <laughs> We've we've been spoiled from that perspective. We've been able to throw money uh-huh. at the growth problem and exactly. mostly, you know, solved it with a lot of labor. And I think we've got to think, you know, differently about that. So, I, you know, one other lens here I, I love your perspective on is the fact that, you know, a lot of these SaaS companies, pretty much all of them, have taken a significant haircut in valuations, right? And, and there's nothing I see in the cards coming into this year that's going to you know, that that's going to jump right back. And so, you know, how does that impact the way that you're 
working, and let's just take the employee perspective, right? Because, you know, employees join these SaaS companies, they get options, you know, they, on, on paper, they might be like, hey, I'm, a, I, you know, I'm a millionaire now. And then all of a sudden, everyone has been brought back to earth, <laughs> you know, in a painful way. So, so how, how are you navigating that? And, and what would you, again, how would you coach other CEOs to think, think about this reality? Well, you know, it is interesting. I mean, and again, it seems like we read the same, the same articles, you know, it was a year ago, it was like, the employees can get everything they want, and you got to throw options and yada, yada, yada. I do, I do think that people are looking for stability right now. And so I think part of it is, is your, is, is a CEO or any executive is your bad valuation, because you're, you're not a stable company. I mean, are you burning cash like crazy? Yeah. And your employees aren't, hopefully aren't stupid. They can see that you're going to have a cash yeah. problem in a couple of years. Yeah. That is a, So let's put that scenario aside. Let's assume that these are very viable. It's just a valuation issue, you know, because that, that I think that's it problem. Is, and it's happening. You're right. There are companies that are viable, but they, they definitely took a haircut on valuation. Mm-hmm. But that's fine. If, and, and, and my old company did and many others did, but I do think it is, it, the world has changed, Thomas. We are, you know, I think we, We've all been through so much. It's almost three years of this pandemic. You know, we spend a ton of time. Uh, we don't spend a ton of time talking about um, equity. We talk about becoming an employer of choice and what do people care about. And you know, God bless all these companies. I just again, the journal had it coming back. You know, you saw it today that the people are saying like, Paycom got to be in the office. Yeah. Like you've got to be in the office. I take a very different view. You know, I live in a very beautiful place that I get to be in part of the time, and that's changed my life that I'm here. And so we are spending like this development week, and we're investing a ton of money and energy into our managers. Because we believe that people stay at companies for great leaders. And it's usually the person that you work for. Like if someone's unhappy, it's because they work for a bad manager. And we've been very underinvested. Um, the company didn't have the tools for managers. And so I think just going back to, the, again, the basics. Why do people work at a company? Do they believe in the mission? I, I obviously am very passionate about what I do, hiring people who do. Is it a great place where people do feel supported, valued, and can grow and have their priorities respected? I think as leaders, you know, I have a very different view than some of the some of the tech and other executives. I think people need to make decisions for themselves on what makes them happy. And coming off of this three-year period, that has been very, very hard. And a lot of people have reset, Thomas, and they're not going yeah. back. My husband is working full-time, 100% from downstairs in Colorado. He's 100% remote. He does miss his coworkers. He's traveled with me a little bit to meet some people, and he's super happy for that. He's like, I think that's really important that you know people do have the chance to meet. And so I think it comes back to the basics, which we just talked about the business. People work for great companies, for great yeah. people that they believe in. And I think if we focus on that, and again, I, I haven't, I don't think I've done this session, but I remember I did this with a company. Um, one of my mentors did it, you know, and we, I think you were, you and I were talking about the dot-com crash. We have to also teach and educate. There will be another huge, I don't, you and I don't know what it is. Maybe it's AI, maybe it's automation. We don't know what that next huge wave is, but I know it's out there. And I know it'll come in the next five years because I've seen all of them <laughs> and I love seeing that happen and it will come back. So this is a moment in time. And again, I think it helps people to have reality because you're right. I, I was hearing a lot of my people were, they were like, well, I got to go change jobs every three years so I can make my yep. millions. Yep. They just expected yep. it. 
it was like a given yep. to them. And again, I don't think that's healthy. Yeah, I, and I, th- I think that this, what this current environment has done is it's re-leveled the playing field. Because you're right, I, th- I think a lot of people were chasing valuation, a pot of gold. Everyone was starting to get on that treadmill. I, I think there are, are two things that are going to be very important to employees over the next couple of years. I think, I think one of them is what you said is mission. I think people, and I hear this again, I see this, you know, where people want to work for a company that's doing something that they, that they think is good, that they value, that they're excited about, right? And, and that can be tons of different things, right? I mean, lots of companies out there, I think, have fantastic missions. But I think employees are going to care about that. And you're right. I think they're going to start caring more and more and more about the environment that they're in, whether it's the flexibility, whether it's mm-hmm. their managers, whether it's their ability to be developed and grow. But that's going to get back on the table in a way that I think that, w- that was really pushed, <laughs> you know, to the back as people were sort of, you know, chasing what they thought was going to be the, you know, the next, you know, big thing financially. So, you know, we'll see how it, it plays out. We'll see how it plays out. And, and, and what, what goes down will come up. I mean, again, I don't know. There'll be winners and so there will be losers. And we've seen that and that disruption and some of the winners will become the losers. But um, I, I'm such a true believer in, in the tech industry as an industry. Some of, some of us have seen this before and it'll be okay. Um, and, uh, and like, you know, like you were never talking about the dot-com, the whole industry imploded. It's not like there were a few layoffs and you know, Salesforce is laying off like 7,000 out of 74. Yeah. It would be like all 74 exactly. or, or like 72 were right. losing their jobs. And that's what you and I live through. Yeah. So it's not catastrophic. No, it's not. It's heavy. painful, painful. This is still the best. I mean, you and I have had, in a sense, some very similar careers. This is the best industry I could have ever hoped to work in. There's no doubt about it. It's been really exciting. And for anybody who's younger in your career, this is a great industry. You're going to have a great yeah. ride. Like to your point, there'll be new waves coming. So, so I'm watching the clock here. I really thank you so much for this conversation. It's been fantastic. You know, I do think it's getting tough out there, but I think that the insights that you shared are going to help people incredibly. And the way I, I like to end these podcasts is with the question of the day. And Ern Corey, if people don't know who that is, it was a great stand-up comic, is quoted as saying, if you don't change direction soon, we'll end up where we're going. And if your previous direction was growth at any cost, I predict a course correction is in your future. Cheers, everyone.